0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome to the Osher Mini Medical School on Low Back Pain. My name is Alexandra Chang, and I'm an anesthesiologist and chronic pain physician at the San Francisco Veterans Medical Center. It's my pleasure to co direct this course over the next six weeks with Paul Su, who is an anesthesiologist and chronic pain physician at UC San Francisco.
1: Yes, Um, thank you, Dr. Chang. Uh, We're super excited that you're able to join us for the next six weeks as we do a deep dive onto lower back pain. Lower back pain is something that Dr. Chang and I see in our patients on an everyday basis, and it's going to be Um, An excellent opportunity and a great pleasure of ours to spend some time with experts to talk to everyone about how we tackle and manage uh, lower back pain.
0: Dr. Su will be giving the first lecture in our course tonight about the basics of low back pain, including anatomy, physiology, and the initial evaluation. But first, a little bit more information about Dr. Su. He completed medical school at Columbia University in New York. He then came to UC San Francisco where he completed anesthesiology residency, a research fellowship and pain medicine fellowship. He is double boarded and currently divides his time among many roles. Clinically, he cares for patients in multiple settings, including in the operating room, in the hospital, and in the pain clinic at UC San Francisco. He also conducts and presents research. He has published multiple book chapters and articles and recently was awarded a prestigious research grant to study the role of a particular transcription factor in regulating acute and persistent post-surgical pain. He is also very involved in medical education, including teaching and mentoring medical students, residents, and fellows. He has also given his time and efforts to multiple projects across UCSF campus and in the community, including a prior lecture he gave for Osher Mini Medical School a couple of years ago. It is my pleasure to now hand it over to Dr. Su.
1: Thank you, Dr. Chang. That was a really nice introduction. Um, So before we get started with today's talk, um, I'm going to just share with everyone the kind of the outline that we're gonna talk about. Um, Before we have the opportunity to do a deeper dive on lower back pain, I do want to spend some time discussing with everyone um, just pain in general and how pain physicians tackle and think about pain. And then we'll talk about the statistics of lower back pain, why it's so common and prevalent. Uh, We'll focus a lot on the anatomy of the lower back, And then with the latter part of the hour, we'll talk about two case scenarios, which hopefully will set up the framework to introduce some of the um, topics to come in the uh, subsequent weeks. So let's start with what is pain. Let's all take a moment here and try to define pain. As some of you will, might struggle to put the words to, to help define or explain what pain is to someone. Well, it might actually be easier to describe pain. I'm sure you've heard terms such as sharp, dull, achy, throbbing, like I, I got hit by a bus, um, numbing, zapping, tingling, radiating, and pins and needles. Now these are all good descriptors for pain and, and they are so very different from each other. I want everyone to kind of take a mental picture or a categorization of these uh, adjectives and we'll kind of revisit them throughout the lecture, but it kind of will help us um, think about and categorize pain in different ways. Now, what do all these descriptors have in common? Well, they're all unpleasant experiences, um, both a sensory as well as carrying an emotional experience. And they're associated with or resembling actual or potential tissue damage, especially that one about getting hit by a bus. Um, Hopefully that person never actually got hit by a bus, but they're describing their pain experience in such a way of potential tissue damage. And this is actually the official definition of pain by the International Association for the Study of Pain. Now, a couple of additional notes to, to worthwhile to mention is that pain is a very subjective experience, and it's one's experience, and we have to respect that. So someone's experience of pain may be drastically different from another person's experience. Um, Pain is a a learned experience, which means it occurs over time. And what we do know about pain is that it's not always protective and that pain sometimes can be pathologic or start and end up interfering with our ability to lift everyday activities. And the last thing is that pain is not a It cannot simply be a direct activation of neurons. It's it's beyond that, and it really is a, a composite experience, and that's something that's really important to note as we go on. So now that we have a common understanding of pain, let's get started with talking about how that experience of pain is formed. So back in 1644, a really smart guy, Descartes, actually published and proposed a theory about how pain is experienced and transduced in the body. And his hypothesis, which is very well true today, starts with a noxious stimulus, so something that actually induces pain, in this case, a fire. And that painful stimulus is picked up by a nerve and then travels up the spinal cord and then is then processed by the brain. Well, that seems... Pretty straightforward and and pretty accurate. Well, our knowledge of the pain system has really expanded um, since then. And just as an example, looking at the different, different sensory nerves, we now know that there are specialized nerve endings for lots of different sensations in terms of how we interact with the world. And pain fibers is only one subset. So the pain fibers are called the nociceptive sensory system. So this is a really complicated looking slide, but the takeaway here, if you kind of look on the the top layer, the very top of the diagram here is supposed to represent the skin. And you can see lots of different nerve fibers going to the the nerve um, of the skin, and they all represent different ways to experience different modalities. A good analogy or a good example would be if you go to the dentist and the dentist administers local anesthetic before they're doing whatever procedure they're doing, let's say a root canal. So after they administer the local anesthetic, it's not like all of a sudden you can't feel the presence or existence of your mouth. You still know where whether your mouth is open or closed. So you still have the ability to detect The position of your of your body in space. When the dentist starts to work, you can still feel the dentist touching your jaw. So your ability to detect pressure or touch is still maintained. However, you don't feel pain and you also don't feel temperature. So this is just an an illustration of how specialized the nervous system and the sensory nervous system can be, and how there's dedicated fibers for pain. So moving beyond the 16th century into the 21st century, our understanding of the pain circuitry um, has evolved to include not just the nerves that carry the sensation up to the brain, but we now have a better understanding of how the pain is processed in the brain. For example, we know that attention and expectation can play a big role in our experience of pain. Think about people who get injured in um, during during war or during um, a sports game. You know, they may not actually experience the, the pain at that time because there's just so much adrenaline or their attention is focused on something else. And there are also descending pathways that help us regulate pain. So this actually leads us to one kind of really key concept here, which is the different mechanisms by which we now try to explain people's sensation of pain. susceptive pain is the type of pain that you would kind of expect when the nervous system is doing its job. So, you know, this is exactly like the picture depicts. This is a type of pain that you experience when you hurt yourself or do things that injure the tissue, that sharp, dull pain, that, that um, stabbing pain when you get that paper cut, for example. So that's the nociceptive system working and detecting what it's supposed to detect. Now, that tingling, zapping, pins and needle, and that numbing sensation, which is also still very painful, that we call neuropathic pain. And that's pain that uh, arises when there is disease or injury to the nociceptive sensory system. So examples of this would be um, people with diabetes, diabetic neuropathy, for example, People who get shingles or um uh, and post-herpetic neuralgia, and also people who have pinched nerves, let's say for sciatica, that sensation of pain is what we call neuropathic pain. And even more recently, I think in, in 2020, the International Association for the Study of Pain recognized this. New pain that has existed all along, it's called nociplastic pain. That is pain that is experienced even without any tissue injury or injury to that nervous system. So if you think about patients with fibromyalgia, patients with headaches, those are good examples of nociplastic pain. Now, these are just what I presented before are just biologic aspects of pain, of how we explain how pain is um, processed. But but pain is much more complicated than that. It's truly an experience. And our most current understanding of pain rests on this biopsychosocial model of pain. That is, we recognize the biologic factors that go into generating and processing pain, but we also recognize the importance and the role of psychologic factors. For example, stress, um, being able to have good coping mechanisms or poor coping mechanisms can really affect one's experience of pain. Childhood traumas, um, for example, for, for example, physical abuse, domestic violence, um, sexual abuse, PTSD—all those are um, can negatively impact people's experiences of pain. And then there's also social factors. You know, as we mentioned before, pain is a learned experience, and a lot of what we learn is societal and cultural. So all three components make up one's experience of pain. So as you can see, we've moved quite a ways uh, from the original 1644 um, depiction of pain. And hopefully I've also depicted and illustrated that pain is a lot more complex than just thinking about the tissue and the biology that's involved and it truly is um, an experience that needs to be um, recognized. So now that we have a basic understanding of pain and how we think about pain, we can then pivot and focus on lower back pain in particular. So let's start with some statistics. So you prob- everyone here probably knows somebody who's experienced lower back pain at some point in their lives, whether it be themselves or uh, a family member or a friend. And that's because Chronic pain or lower back pain is one of the most common pain complaints, way more than knee pain from arthritis, neck pain, headaches, um, as well as you can see in, in this diagram. In fact, lower back pain is the leading cause of disability in Americans under 45. And the prevalence of lower back pain just continues to rise with age. So the older you get, the more likely that you're going to experience lower back pain. And it's estimated that 31 million Americans will experience lower back pain at any given time. So that's about the population, just a little shy of the population of California um, out of the entire United States. So that's a that's a, a huge number. So not surprisingly, back pain also makes up the largest healthcare costs in terms of pain treatment. So with all these statistics, uh, statistics combined, there's no doubt that lower back pain is something that is uh, important for patients, but
0: also has a major public health implication and focus. So
1: you might be wondering why lower back pain affects so many people. And those adjectives that I um that I showed earlier on with the dull, achy, tingling, zapping sensation. Those are all descriptors that patients of mine have used to describe their lower back pain. So the lower back pain is actually a really, really broad category. It's almost like a, 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 a catch-all category for pain that's in the lower back. And, and now that we know so much more about the mechanisms of possible pain generators, we can start to appreciate that there are lots of different ways that pain can occur. And to really appreciate that, we need to take some time now to look at the anatomy of the lower back. So the anatomy of the lower back, I like to think about. you know, here I have the example of a, a build a, a build a bear workshop. But uh, another good analogy to look at the anatomy of the lower back is to think about um, renovating a house or building a house, um, and hopefully that'll be a little more concrete example. So you kind of need structure when you're building a house, or in this case, a back. You it's it's supporting the a lot of our body weight. Um, So you need something that will provide that structure. And in the human body, that's bones. In this case, it's the vertebrae. Now, if you just had one vertebrae, that would get the job done in terms of support. But in order to move, to bend, twist, lean back, you need to have multiple vertebrae so that you can include some mobility um, and joints. So that's why we actually typically have five lumbar vertebrae. Sometimes you can have six, but mostly most people have five. And the vertebrae connect to each other via joints and discs. And as you can see in this figure in the lower right-hand corner, the, included, the inclusion of these um, joints and discs allow for that mobility, uh, mobility So now that we have the structural supports there we got to keep it in place. And that's where the glue and the tape comes in. In the human body, those are ligaments. As you can see here, within and supporting and keeping the vertebrates together are lots, um, uh, are a network of ligaments um, which allow the vertebrae to connect to each other, but still maintain that mobility um, in, in the structure. Next, we run the electricals. And in this case, it's the nervous system. So there are foramens or holes, as well as canals that are formed so that the spinal cord can connect to the brain, which is kind of like the motherboard or the electrical panel
0: and to the rest of the body. And lastly, to make the whole system work,
1: we need motors. So these are the muscles. So, the muscles will then kind of contract and relax to uh, instill those motions that we expect from the back. And voila, altogether, you have the anatomy of the back. So, to summarize, there's the vertebrae, which are connected to each other via discs and joints, and they're glued together with the ligaments. The spinal cord runs um, and connects to the brain. Um, which then exits through the foramens, which connects to the muscles and controls the muscles to allow for movement, and then overlying all that are the skin and connective tissues to keep it, keep
0: everything separated from the outside world So, now that you kind of understand the anatomy of the lower back, we
1: can jump into some case scenarios. So let's start with case one. So this is patient Kelly. So as we're kind of getting into spring cleaning, a lot of you might be doing this activity. So Kelly is a 50 year old individual, otherwise healthy. While lifting boxes in the garage, Kelly experiences a sudden pop followed by severe sharp pain in the right lower back. Kelly shows up to the urgent care clinic to be evaluated. So I'm sure a lot of people will have lived this experience before. We call this acute lower back pain. Now, acute lower back pain simply refers to any pain that is less than three months in duration. And in fact, the chronicity of pain is another measurement by which we characterize pain. So we've we've talked about all the different components that goes into building the anatomy of the lower back. Unfortunately, every single one of those components has the capacity to generate pain and to get injured. And that's why for lower back pain, you can hear lots of different characterizations depending on which structures are injured. For example, most commonly there may be strains um, of the lower back muscles or um, and pulling of the ligaments. Sometimes the discs can um, protrude out and cause disc herniation. That themselves might be really painful or the extrusions or um, herniations might actually pinch on the nerve roots that are coming out and cause neuropathic pain. The good news is for acute lower back pain, Most of that pain will self resolve within a couple weeks. And when you present to an urgent care or your primary care doctor, his or her role is to look out for any sort of red flags or any other signs or clues to suggest that, hey, maybe this lower back pain isn't just what we're seeing from the anatomy of the lower back. So, for example, are there underlying infections? Um, are there, you know, what was the mechanism? Was there a car crash? Are there fractures? Anything that's a little more out of the ordinary. Now, I won't go too uh much further into red flags because that's a, a, a topic that we're going to focus on next week, which is red flags of when lower back pain isn't just lower back pain, and we need to kind of do a little more investigative work. But again, most of lower back pain. Um, acute lower back pain will resolve without any further management. So that's good news for us. So what can we do for acute lower back pain? Well, like I've mentioned, it will go away. So a lot of times it's just tincture of time. Now, sometimes the pain is just so insufferable that we still, and we still need to get on with our, Daily activity. So, what else can we do to help kind of temporize that? Well, the recommendation is that you want to start incorporating activity as soon as it feels comfortable for you. So, you know, as you start feeling better and better, you want to start moving more and more. You don't want to push yourself and uh, and and injure yourself even more, but you do want to start rehabilitating as much um, as early as possible. And if you were to need some additional help, the first step is to think about non-pharmacologic, so non-medication-based. So things like heat, things like stretching, those can all be really, really helpful for managing your pain without having to reach for that pill bottle. Now, let's say you try all those different maneuvers and it's still too much pain for you to endure. Then you can think about Um, some low-risk medications. Now, it's really important for you to consult with your primary care physician to make sure that medications such as Tylenol, non-steroidal, anti-inflammatory medications, or even muscle relaxants are safe for your specific individual um, medical condition. But those are the typical medications that we usually recommend to help with acute lower back pain. Now, some myths, the the classic teaching is that after injuring your lower back, you should have some you should um, exercise bed rest. Well, that turns out to be false. In fact, lying in bed actually makes your pain worse and actually prolongs your pain. And so that's why we recommend including functional rehabilitation as much or as early as tolerable. because lower back pain gets better by itself without much further intervention it doesn't really matter which intervention you try first and it's really up to you what's available for you what's within your budget what kind of where you know what um what's compatible with your lifestyle now there are a couple things that um have been shown to really not be as helpful for managing acute lower back pain. Turns out, um, ice is not as helpful. Traction devices are not helpful. Getting new mattresses is not necessarily helpful. Doing yoga is not necessarily helpful. That being said, none of these things are harmful. So if they happen to work for you, that's totally okay as well. Because again, the main thing is that acute lower back pain will resolve
0: 90% of their time without anything at all. Let's look at another case, this time patient
1: Alex. Alex is also 50-year-old who comes into the pain management clinic complaining of lower back pain that occurred, that has started since 2019. The pain was insidious in onset, so it kind of crept on and actually worsened during the COVID 19 pandemic. So, the fact that this pain has lasted more than three months, we classify this as chronic lower back pain. And in fact, a lot of the pain that we think about when we say lower back pain really implies chronic lower back pain, because that's what sticks around. So, what are some of the causes? of chronic lower back pain. Well, all the causes for acute lower back pain can lead to chronic back pain by definition, but some of the other causes are a little more um, long-term in nature. For example, with time, naturally the vertebrae or the discs between the vertebrates will, um, will become dehydrated and kind of degrade. And that unfortunately just happens with time. Um, which we can't really do anything about. Um, Additionally, the joints of the back, which allow that kind of backward extension, can also become arthritic and degenerative over time. So, you know, very similar to how people develop arthritis in their knees and in their fingers. Um, And some of the other kind of things that can happen over time is that the nerves can get compressed whenever the spaces for these nerves to travel gets impinged because of the degrading disc, for example, or because of the degrading joint. And all of that can feed into a biologic reason for people to experience pain. But that doesn't cause pain for everyone. And that's because Chronic lower back pain or chronic pain has that psychological and social component, which we kind of talked about before. So let's look at some of these factors. So a little more about Alex. Well, Alex has a history of anxiety and depression. Um, Alex, whenever Alex thinks about the pain, Alex tries to avoid activities that cause pain and always is worried about things that could precipitate it. When you ask Alex about how they think about the pain, they say that the pain will never get better. There's nothing I can do to make it better. Woe is me. And Alex spends most of the time in bed or lying on the couch. So you, you all of these factors actually are risk factors for developing chronic pain. And they have nothing to do with what's going on in the lower back. And again, this highlights the complexity of chronic lower back pain. That is that the psychosocial factors play a huge role in developing lower back pain. So coming back to some of these risk factors. So unfortunately, having some pre-existing psychological conditions, psychiatric conditions, for example, anxiety and depression, kind of predisposes people to developing chronic pain. Fear avoidance behaviors, so being, you know, um, being fearful and avoiding certain actions all the time, um, perseverating on the pain can train the brain to actually fire in a painful way. Pain catastrophizing, so kind of this over-exaggerated response to the experience of pain can also promote the experience of chronic pain. And if there's a high degree of functional impairment. So that's why function is so important in treating patients with chronic pain. So hopefully, at this point, I've been able to convince you that chronic pain is not as, may not be as simple as what's going on with the anatomy of the lower back. It definitely has a huge role to play, but for chronic pain, the picture is much more complex. Now, I don't want to paint a picture of just doom and gloom as well, because the reality is we've come a long way in terms of offering patients um, ways to manage their pain. And because chronic pain is so complex with social, psychological, biologic factors, we need to also take a very multidimensional approach to treating and managing um, lower back pain. So and that's going to be the focus of our future um, uh, seminars with specialists from each specific area. So I'm just going to briefly touch on the different um, topics that we'll be going over in the, in the future weeks. So next week, we'll have Dr. Uh, Carolyn Kloping talking to us about the red flags that I kind of mentioned, things that your primary care doctor is kind of looking for when you present with lower back pain. Dr. Paul Chen, who's another um, uh, pain physician, will be talking about different medications and different interventions, you know, including injections and even more advanced pain therapies that have been developed in helping people manage lower back pain. We will also focus on um, the role of surgery. You know, there's definitely pluses and minuses of surgery. And in order to fully understand that, we have Dr. Alan Dang, who's a neurosurgeon at the Veterans Hospital to come and discuss with us. And then as I've mentioned before, functional rehabilitation is extremely important, if not the most important role in helping people with chronic lower back pain. And we have two um, pain specialist physical therapists that will come and discuss with us um, the role of functional um, rehabilitation. So these are kind of just teasers of the lectures in the, uh, the weeks to come. But before we wrap up for today to start our discussion, I do want to touch on a topic that I'm sure that everyone kind of has questions about, which is, you know, if I have lower back pain, should I get imaging? So to image or not to image, that is the question. Well, it turns out for acute lower back pain, because I've stressed that it gets better by itself, there's usually not any imaging modality that's indicated. This is the exception is if there are red flag symptoms. Again, that's kind of the main exception. When the picture is not just lower back pain, that there's something else that might be going on, that might indicate additional imaging. But for your run-of-the-mill lower back pain, there's nothing to do except to um, slowly incorporate your physical activities once you feel up for it. For chronic lower back pain, There's no definitive guideline for the role of imaging. Now, there are three different types of modalities for imaging, and whether they are suitable for you needs to be determined by your physician, depending on your specific case. So unfortunately, there's not a blanket clause. Um, The three different types of modality is x-ray. So x-rays really kind of bounce off um uh, the x-rays bounce off hard um, structures like bone. So it's really good for evaluating bony structures. So things like instabilities, things like fractures, degenerations, and scoliosis can be done with a simple x-ray. MRIs can evaluate the soft tissues, like the nerves, the discs, the ligaments, the spinal cord, as well as the bones. So they can give you a little more information. However, this is traded off by the fact that MRIs um, can be very, very costly. And in fact, studies with MRIs did not show any sort of functional improvement for patients who had MRIs, only that people with MRIs ended up having surgery more more frequently. Interestingly, though, patients that got MRIs were generally more satisfied. Now, I'm not sure if that's because they, you know, they they felt like that was a, a something that was able to be done and thus was done, and they are just happier about that. But that the MRIs themselves didn't really lead to any improvement in outcomes. Now, if there's any sort of contraindications to MRIs, CT scans can also demonstrate um and highlight soft tissues as well as bony structures. Obviously, the major thing to know about CT scans is that they are exposing individuals to a lot more radiation than a simple X-ray or or no X-ray at all. So to illustrate this purpose, um, uh, illustrate this example, I'm gonna kind of pose this question to the audience. So on the left here, we have an MRI of an individual you can see the the, the really white um, thing in the in the MRI photograph is actually the cerebral spinal fluid. So it's the fluid that surrounds the spinal cord. So within the white structure, that gray structure is the spinal cord. And you can see the spinal cord floating really freely within the spinal canal. Compared to the patient on or the radio or the MRI scan on the right, you can see that where that arrow is pointing that disc has bulged out and started kind of encroaching on the spinal canal and perhaps even pinching the the spinal canal there. Now, the question is, is the patient on the right having pain? So, that's the question that can't be answered with any sort of scan. You know, what I tell patients with MRI scans is that You know, especially as we kind of go into 2023, 2024, and our technology gets better and better, chances are it's like getting the best iPhone that the camera is just so good that you're bound to find these quote unquote abnormalities on these scans, but they don't necessarily correlate with pain. You can actually have quite um, severe spinal stenosis without any symptoms. I think the key here is that. Um, We need to recognize that you cannot image pain. And so perhaps that's why people with MRIs ended up going with surgery because you see these abnormalities, but they don't necessarily correlate with pain. So that's kind of the, the ultimate dilemma with the imaging modalities.
0: And before we kind of start our question and answer period, I want to use this opportunity to just
1: summarize some of the topics that we've touched on. So we've talked about the anatomy and physiology of the nociceptive system. So that is the nervous system that's responsible for detecting, and, um, detecting pain or detecting nox- uh, noxious stimulus. Now, that, again, does not equal the experience of pain, as we've kind of illustrated. Um pain is a complex experience that's influenced by not only the biology so um, but also includes the psychological and social factors. When we talk about acute lower back pain, I can't stress enough that most of the lower back pain will improve with time without doing anything at all, and that the transition and the development of chronic lower back pain can be much more complex than simply the biologic causes. And in the coming sessions, we will be discussing how Spain specialists tackle and manage lower back pain using a multidisciplinary approach. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Sue, for that lecture. I think now we have some time to um, answer some questions from our audience. So I think we have one question here about exercising and the health of your low back. Um, What types of exercises do we think are best for keeping your back in good shape? For example, yoga, swimming, hiking, or weightlifting? Is there any type of exercise that we should be doing on a regular basis?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think what I tell people is that motion is lotion. So any sort of exercise um, that strengthens the core is really good for your back. So that kind of anatomy slide that I um, had pulled out, where the the muscles actually. Even though they control the movement for the lower back, they themselves can actually provide structural support and kind of end up um, functioning kind of like like an external brace, but internally to kind of help support um, the lower back. So um, core exercises that that focus on the core are extremely good for the lower back. Um, Something that we don't really think about all the time is that, you know, the The core is any sort of muscle that kind of attaches to the the torso, especially in the lower back. So, you know, the back muscles, the obliques, the abs actually also contribute to the the core uh, muscles as well as muscles of the hip um, as well. So, you know, I I see here the the question is if there's any specific exercises that are good um, for that. And so the the answer is kind of any sort of exercise that tones and tones those muscles. Um, Swimming, I think, is a great exercise as well, especially for patients um, that find it really, really painful to engage in exercises on land. Um, or are just starting out and kind of want to find that um, happy uh, middle ground? Because with swimming, you get that buoyancy, you get that extra assist, so that there's not as much pressure or or, um, stress on your lower back.
0: So this is a great question about, um, you know, the imaging, what we see on MRIs or CAT scans and and, um, the patient's symptoms. Um, So in your lecture, Dr. C, you mentioned that sometimes um, you know, the imaging doesn't really reflect how much pain somebody may be experiencing. Um, is the reverse also true that imaging can look fine where we may not see any kind of pathology, but a patient may still have chronic back pain? And um, if that's the case, um, how much time do we spend kind of figuring out how, how, what their function is like in terms of moving, sitting, slouching, working?
1: Absolutely. I think um, the reverse is definitely true. Um, many a times, you know, um, kind of talking about the recommendation to get imaging, you know, I, even if I don't think that, um, you know, a lot of my patients will will come to me and they already have an imaging already done, even though, you know, based on our discussion, I, I, I don't necessarily think that imaging would be indicated, you know, it, it's available, we're looking at it, and we don't see anything. You know, I don't, I definitely don't turn around saying, well, the MRI is clean, there's no way you can have pain, so I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, That's definitely not true. I think, um, again, kind of going back to that pain 101, you know, pain is definitely an experience. And um, if a person experiences pain, they can experience pain even without the MRI or imaging looking abnormal. And again, that's because there's no imaging modality that can detect pain. Now, what we do do with MRIs is that when there are abnormalities, it kind of helps us explain and understand how one could be experiencing pain um, because, for example, we see that bulging disc, we see the nerves getting pinched, we see the joints being arthritic. That kind of allows us to kind of start to explain, you know what might be causing this pain. But you know, if everything is normal, It actually can be helpful because now we know that, hey, um, this person's spine is is stable. It's safe. You know, it's safe to move around. We don't have to be worried that there is some sort of fracture or that moving, even though that person's experiencing pain, that moving around is actually going to cause more injury. And perhaps their experience of pain isn't so much that biologic Um, component, you know, focusing on the lower back, but perhaps there's an impairment of how the brain is processing the sensation, as pain. So it does, you know, having a a normal image uh, per se kind of also helps us tailor the therapy as well to kind of focus our um, efforts on, um, for example, retraining the brain to not have painful experiences.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good point that, you know, even if the imaging looks perfect and the patient does have chronic pain, it is important to kind of focus on function and what we can do to improve daily physical function, because that is what matters a lot. And then on the same topic of um, imaging here, uh, we have a question about how does arthritis look like on an image? and what is a, a good um, treatment approach for that since it doesn't seem, um, since it's a chronic issue and not something that would easily go away?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, arthritis is, um, is, is challenging because, you know, the, a lot of really arthritis just develops because of age, you know, our, our bodies break down over time and, you know, degeneration is, is normal. It's part of aging, um, especially as kind of our life expectancies are getting longer and longer, you know, there's unfortunately age is not a modifiable risk factor. There's nothing you can do about it. It is what it is. However, again, Having, arth- having arthritic findings on MRI doesn't always mean that that person is experiencing pain. And that kind of that is um, something that I do see quite often, which is when we do imaging, we may see arthritis. But when the person talks about their pain, it's not presenting like arthritic pain. Um, so we kind of just leave those findings um, aside. Now, another a risk factor that is modifiable for arthritis um, or not arthritis, but pain um, related to kind of arthritis is weight. So um, weight is a a modifiable risk factor for arthritis-related pain. So when people lose weight, it actually helps with their experience of pain, even though on repeated imaging, the arthritis is still there or even progressing because time has passed, but you can change um, the experience of pain.
0: And um, kind of speaking about arthritis, how would you describe arthritic pain? Like, what does what do you hear from your patients when they, you know, to have arthritic hip pain, and what does that sound like to you?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, for for the lower back, you know, arthritis develops at the joints, um, so at areas that have motion. So. From, if you kind of recall from the the slide with the anatomy, you know, where the joints of the back are located is actually the back of the vertebrae. So whenever you lean back and put stress and more weight on those joints of the lower back is when one would kind of experience arthritic pain. So a classic physical exam maneuver that we have patients do in the the clinic to assess for arthritic back pain is to actually lean back and then turn to the right, so that puts a lot of stress on the joints of the lower back on the right side. And then we have them do it on the left side, and kind of assess whether or not that those kind of maneuvers kind of exacerbate their pain.
0: And sometimes it's hard to kind of tell, you know, if somebody's coming in with low back pain, is that you know really due to the spine, to the back, or or even to the hip or to other joints? Um, how how can you differentiate maybe on exam whether it's hip or back causing pain
1: that's kind of the, where where the challenge is right um and you know the, the reality is sometimes it's extremely hard to tell um and and that's because all the things that can cause pain is located In a very small area of your body. If you think about the lower back, you know, we've already shown from the previous slides that there's muscles back there, that there's joints, there's nerves, there's ligaments. um, And, and so it's, it's really hard. And, and are, and they all kind of feed into the spinal cord at the same location, and our our brains and our nervous system sometimes are just not that good at being able to tell what one pain feels like for compared to the other. You know, it's it's kind of like that 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 game when um, you know you have you have someone touch you on two spots on the back of your um, on the back of your hand, and you can tell very very, very distinctly where those two spots are. And you can differentiate the two really, really vividly. But then if you have someone kind of touch you on two spots on your back, you know, I think the the response is going to be very different. It's very hard to distinguish the location kind of on on the lower back uh, or on your back. And that's kind of the same analogy is that we just don't have the ability, our nervous systems don't have the ability to distinguish between different pain generators in that small location,
0: yeah, so it's just important to kind of get that overall evaluation, you know, from your primary or even a pain doctor, where sometimes they put together the symptoms, the exam, imaging, to help kind of differentiate the, whether it's spine versus your hip causing the low back pain.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of the times, we even when we kind of put together, when we try to put together the picture in a unifying way, you know, sometimes it's not absolute. You know, we, we form um, essentially educated guests based on everything we know um, and, and how patients are presenting what is most likely, but sometimes what is most likely versus what's second most likely are kind of just right next to each other.
0: This is a question about, um, again, sort of a little bit more about the anatomy in the in the back. Um, do do we ever see that the low backbones or the vertebrae get out of alignment, um, which can therefore affect their, their normal function?
1: In, in the sense, I think one good example is patients who are born with scoliosis that, you know, is a good example of Connect, kind of congenitally, the bones of the vertebrae are, um, are out of alignment, um, that's not to say that they always generate pain, but over time, the fact that the vertebrates are out of alignment may put unbalanced stress on one joint over the other. And, you know, over time, that might lead to um, issues with arthritis and things like that, for example.
0: Sometimes we can kind of see this, um, sort of list thesis where the bones, the vertebrae might slip forward or kind of backward on the other. And that can sometimes also lead to some tightening of nerve roots or the spinal canal as well. So there's kind of different ways for the bones to be out of alignment.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Here's another question, kind of a general question. What is radiculopathy?
1: So radiculopathy, um, Sounds a little ridiculous, but <laughs> not cringeworthy there um but it actually refers to the nerve roots when they come out from the spinal canal to connect to the rest of the body that that area where the nerves come out it's a it's a small foramen now, if those nerves get pinched, you know the more commonly radiculopathies might be known by things like sciatica or pinched nerve that's kind of just the medical term for a pinched nerve root is radiculopathy.
0: What what are your thoughts on chronic pain and neuroplastic pain?
1: So uh, you mean like no plastic pain perhaps I think um is 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 the uh, the new category of pain that's coming about. So um chronic pain simply just means that you are experiencing or one is experiencing pain for more than 3 months. And you know what I've presented here or earlier on are kind of three different mechanisms by which we try us we try to explain why people are experiencing pain for more than 3 months. You know one way is that there's there's some sort of tissue damage that's going on and that's activating the nociceptive system and the nociceptive system is functionally totally fine. It's doing what it's supposed to do, it's just responding to an area of the body that has injury that's prolonged. So, take the example of arthritis you know, there is joint damage in the knees. The nociceptive system is firing appropriately, saying, Hey, there's degeneration in the knees. I'm going to pick that up and I'm going to fire. So, that can happen for more than three months and that's one mechanism of chronic pain the other mechanism I kind of discussed was when there's injury to the system that's supposed to pick up pain and that type of pain is neuro uh, neuro um, uh, oh I just the word just uh,
0: neuroplastic. neuroplastic. yeah
1: yeah sorry yeah neuroplastic pain yeah I just blanked. Um, Yeah, so that's pain that comes about when that system that's supposed to detect pain goes haywire or has a disease with it. Then the third type of pain, so the example that I gave for that is um, people with diabetic neuropathy, for example, or peripheral neuropathies, the nerves are injured. Um, and they can kind of fire in that way, and then the last category of pain is called nociplastic pain, and this is kind of that that new kind of concept of pain that um is being more characterized nowadays, and essentially that means that it's pain that does not involve the nociceptive system, so the gnosis there's nothing on there's no injury in your body, so the nociceptive system should not be firing and there's no injury to the system that's supposed to be working, but you're still experiencing pain. So um, the examples or the kind of the, the stereotypical patients are patients with fibromyalgia, for example, and they can actually happen with lower back pain. So lower, so when patients present with, you know, back pain, that's kind of non-specific, it's kind of just it hurts kind of in the lower back area. You know, there's there's nothing really on imaging that could explain why they're having pain. There isn't any sort of um, previous injury that's, um, that's occurred in that area. There's no diabetes or other reasons why their nervous system wouldn't be functioning well, but they're still experiencing pain. So that kind of um, Invokes this no, nociceptive pain, which we think, and it, we're not fully sure yet. It's an area of active research, but we think that it's from impaired pain processing that's up in um, more of the cortical region. And usually, those type of pains are are not really isolated to just one body area, because if you think about if it's something wrong with the the CPU or the the motherboard processing pain, you know it's, it's more likely that it's gonna spill out into lots of different areas. So those type of patients with nosy plastic pain typically also have anxiety, they also have depression, they have headaches, they have difficulty concentrating, they have chronic fatigue syndrome. So you can see how kind of that, the central processing kind of spills over and is is dysfunctional for lots of different areas.
0: I think one of our audience members is also talking a little bit about neuroplasticity. Um, So, right. Which I think, you know, there, there, there's definitely that thought about training the brain and training our response to pain and, and changing it over time as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the, the neuroplasticity of the pain is one of the mechanisms to explain. It can happen to explain all of the different pain types that we kind of just talked about, because you're right. The brain is really good at picking up and learning. If you think about, you know, what I tell patients is that sometimes, you know, if you think about pain, like a bad habit, You know, even if you're not trying to learn something just by repeating and doing it multiple times, your brain kind of naturally picks it up. That's how we, that's how we ride a bike. That's how we, you know, learn to play sports or do a certain skill is that, you know, you're not, you're focusing on on it for a couple of times, but then the brain kind of just rewires itself. So sometimes when the pain signal fires repetitively over and over again, whether we know it or not, we're actually strengthening those type of connections and over time one of the things that can happen unfortunately is that you actually don't need that trigger anymore. The brain has picked up so much of it that it can just do it on its own.
0: Well thank you so much, Dr. Sue, for answering our questions. Any Any other last words here, Dr. Sue?
1: no thank you everyone for the great discussion i think these are all really good questions and i I really think that the future lectures are going to be able to answer and kind of address and kind of dive into more detail some of these um, great points that were brought up today
0: you've been listening to a podcast by university of california television for more information about this program or uctv visit us online at uctv.tv